Of course, we had other names uh, who did important things in ufology, but for some reason, ladies didn't pay attention to UFOs. Of America Audio with your host, Tim Benall. Hello there, my friends. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio Season 2. It is February 24th, 2007, and this week our guest is Farah Yurdazu, Turkey's first female ufologist. And our conversation really runs the gamut of esoteric material emanating from Turkey. We're covering Turkish history. We're going to talk about underground cities in Turkey, famous Turkish UFO sightings and landings. What is the sociology of the UFO phenomenon there in Turkey? What do the people think? What does the government think? What do the UFO researchers think? Plus, abductions, chilling material here on Turkish abductions. Rumors of Noah's Ark being in Turkey. You know what I'm talking about, those famous rumors of Noah's Ark being on Mount Ararat. Is it true? I don't know. We're going to find out from Farah what the Turkish people think of the rumors of Noah's Ark being in Turkey. Plus, of course, as is the standard here on the program, tons and tons more international esoterica at its finest here with Farah Yurtazu. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Farah Yurtazu, let me give you a little bit of background on her. Born in Istanbul, at 13, Farah became hypnotic trance medium at Turkey's Center for Metaphysical Study, one of the world's oldest institutions devoted to paranormal research. She went on to become Turkey's first female UFO investigator, author of four best-selling books and many magazine articles, and host of her own popular TV show, still broadcast throughout the Turkish-speaking world. Now in New York, Farah is bringing her insights to a broader audience. With her deep knowledge of Middle Eastern spiritual tradition and charming no-nonsense manner, Farah is set to become a household name in the West's burgeoning New Age community. Her website is www.farahyurtazoo.com, and I'm going to have to spell this one out for you folks, www.farahyurdozu.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 28, 2007, Farah Zoo on Banal of America Audio. Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio, and we have a very special guest this week. It is Farah Yurdazu. She is Turkey's first female ufologist. When I found out she was in America, she's come to America, I was very excited because finding out more about what's going on as far as the UFO phenomenon and the study of UFO phenomenon is in other countries. So I was really excited to hear uh, about Farah Yurdazu and wanted to have her here on the show. I think uh, she's just going to explode onto the esoteric scene in the next couple of years. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be talking about her and her work. Farah Yurdazu, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me being here with your listeners at your show. Thank you. Now, Farah, uh, let's start out first with your bio and the background and how you came upon investigating UFOs in the first place. 
Well, um, in fact, everything started a long time ago than I was born. Everything started in my family, in my mother's family, in late 1800s. Uh, my grandmother's father had a close encounter with some creatures, with some beings. Wow. And he was a very uh, logical man. How can I say? Uh, he was one of the very important uh, mathematics and French uh, professors of Istanbul University in the uh, late 1800s. And he was a science man. I mean, he didn't believe in spiritual things yeah. or in ghosts or in paranormal activities, whatever. It was a different time. So when he was still a young uh, university teacher, in a very unexpected way, he was visited by two beings in his bedroom. And what he describes matches the uh, description of what we know as reptilians. But of course then they didn't have any concepts such as reptilians or ETs or aliens grave. So he didn't know what happened. But he was extremely scared. And he remembers very well that they were, two of them, were communicating with him. And uh, they were bipolar, so they were, they looked half human, half animal, but they were, they were walking on their two legs, on their two feet. Yeah. And, uh, the only thing that he really was, he was very scared, their eyes were reptilian eyes. They had reptilian eyes. And, uh, I guess the communication was in a kind of telepathy, and of course he cannot, he didn't know how long they stayed with him. Probably he was under um, hypnosis or something like this. Yeah. Uh, as he was very scared, he didn't want them, so he tried to send them away. Mm-hmm. And when they were leaving, they seemed very frustrated because he didn't accept their visits. He didn't accept uh, the knowledge or the information, let's say, they were going to offer to him, yeah. to my great-grandfather. And before they leave the room, they turned back and they looked at him as if, what do you want or why you are sending us back? And he asked them one thing. Please don't disturb me never again. And they said, from you to three generations. Since then, after this incident, in our family, paranormal activities started. His five children, uh, two boys and uh, three sisters, three daughters, one of them is my was my grandmother, they became psychics. They were the first generation psychics. And then the second generation psychic was my aunt, my mother's sister, older sister. She was a very good psychic. And after the second generation, I became a psychic. I mean, I was was born as a psychic. Anyway, so I think this visit or this close encounter with some beings changed something in our family. And if they wanted to give something, I guess they gave us this psychic ability, the ability to communicate with the paranormal world, with the paranormal side of the life. So that's why 
I found myself in a family who were extremely interested in spiritual things, parapsychology. And of course, when they were practicing spiritual channeling or parapsychological investigation, this is, let's say, 1920s or 1930s in the years, Mm -hmm. there wasn't such a thing as UFOs. So I remember that I am a child. I was a child of Apollo moon uh, landings or flights or missions. Yeah. And at the same time, I was watching Star Trek. So it was very normal for me to get involved in UFOs. So this is how it started in a way, basically. Basically. Okay. Um, now, let me ask you a little bit about your psychicness, because uh, I don't know too many people who are, who are psychic in general. What, what kind of abilities would you say that you have? And, and I say, it says here that uh, in, your, in your bio on the website, it says, at 13, Farah became hypnotic trance medium at Turkey's Center for Metaphysical Study, one of the yeah. world's oldest institutions devoted to paranormal research. At yeah. 13, that's amazing, like a child prodigy. Well, in fact, um, the psychic awakening started when I was younger, uh, when I was, let's say, five years old, six years old, I was able to have out-of-body travels, astral travels. Oh, wow. And uh, it was a game for me, and I was thinking that everybody can do that. But then later, I found out that it is not so easy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> And similar things was happening around me. I was able to um, hear and see some voices and some images, just like it happened to some other people in my family. Yeah. But then, uh, after 12 years old, 13, 14 years old, that, uh, that uh, teenager years, mm-hmm are very important for psychics and for paranormal activity. Generally, it explodes. The psychic ability or the psychic gift explodes. I had a very unhappy, extremely unhappy incident related to psychic vision. It was a kind of remote viewing, but by itself, I mean. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, remote viewing is a scientific uh, mediumship. But what happened to me, it was something that I wasn't expecting. So I saw a very unhappy accident. It was happening at the same time in another part of the city. Yeah. So after that incident, I started to visit uh, Istanbul's Metaphysical Research Society, which was established in 1930s in Turkey. And still today, I have a very good communication with them. In fact, uh, they shaped my uh, psychic gifts under the control and guidance because it was established, it was uh, opened by expert investigators and real psychics. So I decided to visit them and I explained to them my experiences. During the same time, I started to see my first UFOs, my first sightings, let's say. So they wanted to work with me. They wanted to study with me. So we had uh, a long time together with them, uh, and they trained me as a hypnotic medium to communicate with the 
others' realms. Awesome, awesome. Were you successful to communicate with these other realms? Well, yes. In fact, uh, as you know, last year I was in PLC's paranormal uh, ghost hunting show, Dead Tenants. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were a group of psychics. So I was in that show and uh, we had really interesting investigations there. So, of course, we were in front of the cameras and uh, I'm talking about myself. I had only one chance to communicate with the ghosts or with the spirits yeah. in front of the cameras. You cannot repeat it. Yeah. Uh, and it was a very, very successful 10 episodes. And they were very successful 10 episodes and uh, in the show they couldn't show everything because of the time limitations yeah. so we were visiting the real ghost haunted places real families who were suffering from the ghost attacks oh, wow. and uh, we were uh, staying over there during a weekend so we were sleeping there, uh, eating with them, sharing their experiences. And of course, we were lucky because we were able to record ghost activity in front of the camera. So this happens. Let's move on into uh, ufology in Turkey. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you've been here in America for a while, uh, so you've kind of got, got an idea of what the U.S., the United States UFO uh, study scene is like. Um, mm -hmm. How would you compare and contrast um, the U.S. ufology to Turkish ufology? Well, uh, first of all, let me tell you one thing. Mm -hmm. UFO reality, extraterrestrial visitors, extraterrestrial ancestors, let me tell you, they're always in Turkish daily life. When you look at our very, very ancient first creation stories about the first Turkish tribes and the Turkish mythology, there are so many information about extraterrestrial beings who came from other stars with uh, flying objects. And uh, at the beginning, Turkish nations were tribes, just like uh, native Indians of the United States. Yeah. And our origin was Central Asia, just like native Indians of the United States. So we were shamanic. We were shamans. We were shamanic. Yeah. Before we became Islamic. So we are sharing the same culture and the same background with native Indians of uh, North America. Okay. So uh, I am extremely involved in Turkish ancient mythology and creation stories. Because in all creation stories, tells you about strangers who come, who descended from stars, and who got married with the Turkish tribes, Turkish people, to create a new nation. The other thing is that, it is very interesting and attractive to me, the wolf symbol. Yeah. Wolf as an animal was very, very important for Turkish nations. Because in some creation stories, during these uh, extraterrestrial visitors, before or after, a wolf appears and speaks to the human beings, speaks uh, with a voice, as if it's a human. And again, in some creation stories, 
some Turkish tribes uh, born from the wolves. So wolf is the ancestor of the Turkish tribes. So when you look at today's abduction cases, we see the same thing in many abduction cases before or after abductee or contactee sees wolves suddenly. Now what do you think um, the significance of the wolf is? Would that be a, a literal sense or some sort of shape-shifting type of ability? Shape-shifting, I guess, yeah. of course. I mean, must be a shape-shifting because uh, in ancient thousands of years, thousand years ago, in a society who are nomadic, they had no information about nothing, I mean. They were living in tents. They only had eagles, horses, and wolves around them. Yeah. So the best thing is to shapeshift into a wolf to communicate with them, to get closer to them, not to scare them. Because a typical reptilian or a typical gray uh, could be very scary yeah. for that society. But a wolf is a very normal concept for them, very normal animal, so it was okay. And uh, so in time, a wolf became a sacred animal, a protector. They believed that wolves protect Turkish nation. And uh, one of the Turkish um, uh, nation's flag was the wolf hat. It is still very important in Central Asia. So the knowledge, the given knowledge is changing the shape, but it's still here. Yeah. So all these things brings me <laughs> to a conclusion that it is not only imagination, it is not only fantasy, there is something because it is in our history. And then later, uh, especially in 15th century, over Istanbul, there are records of very prominent, very exciting UFO uh, sightings. Yeah. One other thing that I always mention in the lectures or in conferences or in my uh, articles, the underground cities of Turkey, in the central part of Turkey, which is called Cappadocia, we have an amazing web of underground cities. They are under the ground and they have 27 floors. Wow. 27 floors under the ground. Only seven or eight of them are open to public as a museum. The rest is still closed. They were found in the uh, 1960s. Mm -hmm. And the uh, government, of course, started to research them with a group of archaeologists. And it's a huge complex. Today, three major of them are very well known. But we know that, I mean, the government knows that. Uh, the total number of underground cities in Turkey is around 100. Wow. And they are dated to 5,000 years ago from our time. And we don't have a specific information about their builders yeah. who made them. All we know, they are... They were made with a perfect engineering. They were carved 
in the natural uh, rocks under the ground, but they are huge cities yeah. with houses for families, with uh, town squares and everything. Now let me ask you a couple questions here about these underground cities because I'm fascinated. You've just completely blown me away with this. Why are only seven floors here open to the public? What's only seven and eight of them, or seven or eight of them, are open to public? Many reasons. First of all, it is very expensive to keep doing this research. Yeah, it requires a lot of money because it's a very difficult area. It takes years to open them to be able to go there. Mm -hmm. The second thing, uh, yes, now today they are open to public all over the world every year, millions of tourists, uh, national and international tourists go there, go there. But again, when you go there, there are differences between the ceiling high. Sometimes it is normal, but sometimes it is very low. So you have to uh, walk on your knees from one room to another room. Yeah. And uh, in some parts, uh, the floors are linked to each other with stairs. But again, I mean, imagine they were made 5,000 years ago, maybe before. It is not a perfect stair. <laughs> so, I mean, and they are very old. And it may be dangerous. For instance, uh, people who have uh, heart problems or pregnant ladies, mothers, are not allowed to go there. Yeah because it may be dangerous. So that's why they keep only seven floors open to public. Okay. Technical reasons, I mean. Yeah. Technical and very logical reasons. Um, and then my, my other question here about the underground cities before I move on, I could talk to you all day about this, but I want to yes, cover yes. other stuff, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, you say they're like 5,000 years old, has, mm -hmm. but we don't know who built them. Have, no. Uh, did did the people who are studying them discern anything from from what they found in these underground cities? Were there any bodies or um, historical records or anything like that? Yes, uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. Uh, they were found uh, relics from high tides, mm -hmm. but nobody found any bones. Yeah. Nobody found any personal objects, archaeological objects. There are no inscriptions or designs on the walls. There is nothing left. Unless some group of people created them, made them, they used them, and then they didn't want to leave anything behind with a purpose. Yeah. For some reason, they were very careful not to leave any, any, uh, pictures or any relics or any designs or any symbols on the wall, uh, walls. There is nothing. Definitely there is nothing. Bizarre. Yes, very bizarre. It's a very mysterious area. And uh, I know that uh, some investigators, some paranormal investigators, had very fascinating meetings and strange encounters down there in the depths of the underground cities. And uh, they, some people had some close encounters with some creatures, that's another story. <laughs> but on the surface of this area, it is one of the most 
busy UFO sightings and landings to the region of Turkey. Really? In 1980s, we had the mass UFO sightings and landings, many landings in that area, in the same area. So if you, if I make you a Turkish map, yeah. and if I put stars where we see, where we have most of the UFO sightings, that area would have at least uh, 50 stars. Wow. Yes, I mean, it is a very, very busy area. So, uh, in general, in our country, in Turkey, we have constant UFO activity time to time. Of course, we don't have uh, UFO sightings or landings every day, but we have uh, often. Yeah. We have often, yes. Um, here in America, we have, um, you know, studying UFOs is sort of under the radar. It's not mainstream. It's uh, on the fringe of science. In in Turkey, is it the same way? Is ufology on the fringe of science, or is it more okay to study UFOs? Okay, uh, the lifestyle, the vision is completely different. Of course, it cannot be the same. Yeah. But in Turkey, when there is a UFO sighting or a UFO landing, or Anybody, any individual who has a video camera, if took, if recorded UFO activity, you can see this news the next day on the first pages of the most important newspapers. Wow. What is the most important newspaper in the United States? The New York Times. Okay. Think about there was a UFO sighting today. Tomorrow, it will be on the first page yeah. in a newspaper, just like uh, New, York Times. New York Times. Yeah. And you could see the same news on the primetime television news. If there is a photograph, if there is a shooting, they will show it. Yeah. So the mentality is different. We are very open-minded about the UFO activity. I mean, we accept, we know that they exist, they are real. Yes. But this doesn't mean that there are people who are against all this reality. Of course, I mean, not everybody is accepting. For instance, I made many television shows in Turkey about UFOs, mm -hmm. and I have been a guest in talk shows or debates, and most of the times we were criticized the people who believe UFOs, we were criticized by astrophysicists yeah. or meteorologists. And one of these told me that what I believe, UFO, is a firefly in the sky, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so there are this kind of people, of course. But again, press likes them. Yeah. Press and media gives what the subject deserves. Yeah. So it is different there. Yeah, that, it sounds like it. Um, now, what about the perspective of the government? Here in America, of course, um, people who are involved in the UFO field, for the most part, think there's some kind of government cover-up of UFO secrets. Um, what's the government in Turkey have to say about UFOs? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. 
UFO subject is not a secret in Turkey. Yeah. So when there is no secret, there is nothing to cover it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there is an expression they say that uh, what is hidden, uh, no, uh, hidden what is forbidden is sweet, something like this. They say something like this. When you forbid something to your child, he definitely wants to do that. Yeah. In Turkey, paranormal subjects or UFOs are not forbidden, are not hidden, so there's nothing to cover it up. So, that's so simple. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in general, in many ways, of course, our mentality, our lifestyle, our experiences are very, very open. Now, you sort of talked about how the government, there's probably no cover-up there, and uh, how the media is very open-minded. Would you say, and it's, uh, you sound, sort of suggest that the general public's pretty much just open-minded to the idea of UFOs, and it's not yes, as, it's not as extremely. Okay, for instance, if somebody says that, I know that UFOs are real, or if somebody says that, I had a UFO sighting, that people wouldn't be... Uh, seen as a crazy or ignorant or something like this because yeah. it's normal. Yeah. This is normal. I mean, uh, for us, there is no difference between I saw an airplane or I saw a, a UFO. It's the same thing. <laughs> Almost the same thing. Not very much same, but the concept is the same. Yeah. I mean, you don't think that crazy if somebody says, I saw an airplane in the sky. Yeah. Which is normal. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Given that, that there's this openness and uh, the UFO um, enigma has gone back so long in Turkish history, mm -hmm. are, are there people in Turkey who try to figure out what the UFOs are, or is it just sort of an accepted thing, like um, those are the UFOs and we don't know what they are? Is there Are there people, and obviously you're a UFO investigator, so... Are there people trying to come to conclusions about what they are, studying the UFOs? Well, first of all, uh, we generally, as a nation, let's say, mm -hmm. not only me, we think that they are solid. They are coming from another dimension. But of course, there are questions. Are they coming from the future? Or are they coming from another parallel universe, another dimension? Yeah. So, so far, it is difficult to give the right answers. Yeah. Because in Turkey, we didn't have, as far as we know, we didn't have UFO crashes. So when you have a UFO crash, you have a material, a solid material to investigate, a metal or something. Yeah. But only having the UFO sighting on the air mm -hmm. or only being witnessed to a UFO landing is something different because you don't have an evidence to investigate in a laboratory. We have many abduction cases, modern abduction cases today yeah. in Turkey. And in my family, there are abduction cases. Mm -hmm. But we don't have abduction investigators in Turkey. That's the problem. Oh, really? Yes. That's the problem because UFO investigation and close encounter or abduction investigation are completely different things. Oh. But they are. They're different subjects. Yeah. I think uh, to be able to, to be an abduction researcher, somebody has to be qualified in many ways. 
such a such as a hypnotist or a therapist or a doctor or something, because uh, abduction research most all the time is involved with hypnotherapy, yeah, or psych uh, psychology or psychiatry, and also with surgery, as you know in the United States, yeah. So if uh, we are talking about the implants in the bones or in the tissues, who are going to take them out with surgery? A normal plain UFO investigator cannot do that. Yeah. So you can be a very good physicist, you can be a very good in UFO investigator, but you must be a surgeon or a hypnotherapist. Yeah. So that's why uh, we cannot get any information in abduction site except the uh, memories of the abductees. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about the uh, the history of UFO study in, in Turkey? Uh, like we had, in America, we had, you know, uh, after World War II, then all these big, big names started coming up, like the J. Allen Hynix and, and the James McDonald, Donald Kehoe, and sort of the first generation. And, and, and ufology as a science has had an evolution here in America. What's the organized uh, like study of ufology? How has it evolved over the last few years, and, and what where is it similar and different from America? It is very different because, as I told you before, we didn't have a UFO crash in Turkey. Mm -hmm. So Roswell UFO crash and other crashes changed many things in American ufology and, in fact, in international ufology. So something happened, and I mean the crash happened, the Roswell incident happened. Yeah. And then it was necessary to have UFO investigators. Yeah. That's why UFO investigators decided to be UFO investigators. <laughs> yeah. People decided to be UFO investigators. It's the kind of, how do you say, demand and there is an... Supply and demand? Yes. A kind of, because it was necessary. Yes, we have, we have been, we had in the past sightings, landings, whatever. Mm -hmm. But... In Turkey, as I mentioned to you before, paranormal studies first started with spiritualism. Yeah. Where I learned how to be a psychic medium. I mean, where I was trained, let's say. Parapsychology. But of course, a Metaphysical Research Society of Istanbul in Turkey is the number one, always. Uh, what they did, they started to publish Many books. They translated books from English and from French. Yeah. For instance, George Adamski's books were published in Turkey by this organization in Turkish many years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has not, I mean, it is not ufology, it is something else, but a famous American psychic, Edgar Casey. Yeah who was known as a sleeping psychic and he was giving information about Atlantis. He is very popular in Turkey because the same organization translated and published his almost all books many years ago. Yeah. So we were learning we were learning reading from his books. And then another group, again in uh nineteen seventies, a very pioneer 
very important leading UFO investigator uh, called Haluk Egemen Sarıkaya. I know it is a Turkish name and it may be a little bit difficult to remember him. I'm repeating Haluk Egemen Sarıkaya. We can call him just Mr. Sarıkaya. Okay. Yes, Mr. Sarıkaya. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was a very good investigator. He was an investigator on the location. I mean, he wasn't doing his investigations from his office. So he was going to the location. And he also uh, started a a publishing company, and he started to publish hundreds of books about ufology. So he was getting them translated from English, from German, or from French. And uh, he created a wonderful library, a resource for next generations. So, to me, the most important thing in ufology or parapsychology or in spiritualism, you have to read the written text. You must write. Yeah. Because the next generations are learning or they are going to learn from your books. Exactly, yeah. So that's why I am very much into writing. Mm -hmm. Because when you write, you share what you know. Exactly. Speaking in the conferences is very nice, but how many people can listen to you in a conference? Yeah. But when you write, when you leave a book behind you, years are passing and still you, you are able to share your knowledge. So this is a very important point to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Turkey, the investigation was based on is based on the individuals yeah. who dedicated themselves to do this very voluntarily without expecting anything exchange. Yeah. And uh, of course, we had other names. Uh, who did important things in ufology, but for some reason, ladies didn't pay attention to UFOs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is interesting. Yeah. So uh, I decided to, in fact, I started to write magazine and uh, newspaper articles in my early 20s in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I was a university student at Istanbul University in the Spanish language and philology department. So uh, I was learning how to be a Spanish teacher. Yeah. So, but meanwhile, I was writing in uh, newspapers and articles, and uh, I published my first book, I guess it was in 1991. Mm -hmm. I'm not very sure. It was a long time ago. (laughs) So... Uh, and before me, there wasn't any women investigators in UFO field. There were some in spiritualism, in parapsychology, but UFOs, for some reason, always was for men. Yeah. Just like science fiction. Yeah. Science fiction is generally a men's uh, subject, but ghosts or parapsychology is for women. So that's how it happened in my life with my first book, and then I started to speak in television shows, in talk shows, and I made my own television shows. Then I read three more books in Turkey. 
Wow. Yes. So now I'm writing my fifth book for my Turkish publisher. It is going to be in Turkish. I'm trying to finish it. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, I cannot. It must be an updated book, but each day there is a new incident, so I'm deciding to include it to my book, and it never ends. (laughs) (laughs) You're the first woman in Turkish ufology. Since you've come along, has there been other Turkish uh, women come along, or are you still sort of the lone wolf, no pun intended? Uh, You know what? I am not very sure because as now I'm living in Turkey, I'm not living in Turkey as I'm living in the United States, I don't have very much contact. Ah. So it is difficult to give you a specific answer in this. Okay. But on the web, I I can see there are lots of forums. There are lots of uh, chat groups. Yeah. In UFOs, but these are the UFO fans. I mean, I see girls' names, of course, I mean, because they are reading the books, they are interested in. But professionally, anybody who wrote a book or made a television show, as far as I know, I don't know. Yeah. Personally, I don't know. Okay. Now, you've sort of uh, mentioned a couple times here UFO landings. Now, wow, that's pretty rare as far as I know here in America, um, but it sounds like it happens a lot in Turkey. Talk a little bit about these UFO landings and some of the circumstances around them and and whatever you can tell us about that because it sounds interesting. Well, um, again, in 1980s, in the same area, in Cappadocia area, we started to have mass sightings. So it took only one year, every month, and most of the times, people were gathering, getting together in the night, and they were waiting for the UFOs. Yeah. And UFOs were coming. And first, they were, the first one was coming up, then their number was 3, 5, 10, 20, and they were counting, witnesses were counting, until 100, 180. Wow. Yes. And uh, in one case, and these are reports by the journalists, by the reporters of the newspapers. Uh, everything is in newspapers, I mean. Uh, they, I guess they had a kind of close encounter with one of the UFOs, and the UFO was started to getting lower a little bit over a hill. Mm-hmm. And there was a group of uh, people from the town, a policeman and uh, teachers, the journalists, and they decided to turn on and off their flashlights at the same time to make a sign-off yeah. to the UFO, and they decided they, they started to do it. And the UFO gave them a reaction and answer responded, turning off and on their lights. It's light. Wow. But this wasn't a landing. Okay. This was a kind of close encounter communication. Yeah. Because that UFO suddenly got disappeared. In another case, uh, this report belongs to a taxi driver. So he was going back to home in a late evening. And on the right side of the road, suddenly he saw an object. And he thought that it was a van. Yeah. It was a truck, but he thought that maybe there was an accident because it was an isolated area. These things are not in the city, of course, out of the city, mm-hmm. far from the city. So he decided to stop and ask, do you need help, whatever? So he stopped his car, he got outside, 
And what he saw wasn't a van, wasn't a cat. <laughs> it was a huge egg. <laughs> <laughs> a huge egg-shaped object, but in the size of a cat or a van. Yeah. So he said, this is not a cab. <laughs> and in the moment he thought, he had this thought, the egg-shaped object started to uh, elevate itself slowly, slowly first. And uh, it was, uh, what is that, emanating light, yeah. a huge light. So when it was rising up, the light was getting stronger. In one point, the taxi driver couldn't look at it anymore because it was so bright. And suddenly, with a huge speed, it got disappeared in the sky. Wow. And so many incidents like this. So, of course, there are uh, close encounters with the humanoids, that kind of stuff. It's happening. I mean... You know what? I would. I. I. I'm thinking that if we were alone in the universe, if the Earth was the only planet with intelligent beings, yeah, and the cosmos and the universe, this would be a huge punishment to human beings. Yeah, I cannot imagine a universe without life on other planets. Yeah. So now we know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> And it is very logical. Uh, the rest is to share it, to share it and to understand it. Now, you say uh, there's not much, if any, uh, abduction research in Turkey. Have you done any uh, research into abductions in Turkey? And, uh... I, okay, uh, I cannot because I'm not a certified hypnotherapist. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a surgeon. So all I can do is to interview people and or listen to their stories yeah, or to take photographs if they have uh, scars or strange uh, marks on their skin. But this is not an investigation. Okay. This is just gathering the reports. Yeah. And then based on those reports um, and the information that you have on Turkish abductions, are there any significant differences or similarities with American abductions? Well, uh, similarities are a lot. Yeah. Uh, people are having the very, very similar experiences. Yeah. Everything is the same, and they can describe you the same uh, looking type aliens. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I told you before, in my family there are abduction cases. Yeah. And when I speak with uh, my cousins, who are who has they were visited many many times. Yeah, uh, they are telling me the same stories that I generally listen here in New York City in some abduction meetings. Yeah, but again, uh, they have no chance to come here and uh, to meet with an abduction researcher, mm -hmm. and we cannot we cannot take a famous abduction researcher to Turkey because we don't have money. We cannot do that. So everything is depends on the money. Yeah. So when there is no money, there is no abduction. <laughs> In a way. Yeah. It stays as a family story. Yeah. You say uh, your grandfather's abduction, um, that the beings were sort of reptilian. Yeah. Um, what, is there any consensus on the, the being types as far as uh, people's encounters with them in Turkey? Are they reptilian, Nordic, gray, all of the above? Well, most of the uh, greys and humanoids, yeah. human-looking visitors, let's say, mm -hmm. 
not completely, completely human, but if you want, call the Nordics. Yeah. But grace, 100%. A lot. Okay. A lot. And uh, we have some men in black cases too. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? It happened in late, I guess, in 1980s in a very small town. And the witness or the victim was a teacher, the town's teacher. He was living alone in a very tiny house. And one night he was visited by three men, completely strangers. He never met them before. And they were wearing all black, typical. Yeah. And uh, they said that they were traveling and they needed to stop. And he invited them inside. In Turkey, this is a tradition. When somebody comes to visit you, as a courtesy, <laughs> you invite them inside to offer some tea, Turkish tea. In fact, it's a very dangerous habit <laughs> because you never know who are you inviting in. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so they came and they sit in the living room. In fact, I guess it was only one living room, one bedroom, such a tiny place. Uh, so the owner of the house, the teacher, went to the kitchen to prepare tea. And he spent only three minutes, maybe less, in the in the kitchen. When he came back, the guys were gone. And he looked all over. They weren't anywhere. I mean, there wasn't anywhere. Yeah. And he didn't hear the door opened and closed in a tiny, in such a tiny place. Yeah. So he went outside. His little girl, neighbor's girl, was playing outside. He asked her, did you see three men? She said, yes, I saw them. And she pointed out the corner of the street. They looked. And what they saw were three black dogs. Dogs? Yes, barking. Yeah. And they suddenly got disappeared. Wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. Well, in Turkey also, uh, as part of the tradition, we believe in paranormal uh, visitors, and we call them jinns. Jinns? Genie, jinn. Okay, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a part of our tradition. It's a part of our uh, Turkish lifestyle in many ways. Yeah. So, in a very short term, I think Turkish people used to call aliens jinns. Yeah. So, jinn and aliens is the same thing because uh, we also have a belief that little children are generally abducted by the jinns in the nighttime. Jinns abduct them from their bed, mm-hmm. from their bedrooms, and they take them somewhere in the night and they bring them back in the morning. And when the child, little child, three years old, five years old, younger than yeah. uh, eight, seven, mm-hmm. in the next morning, child has a black color substance, a paint, on his or her hands and body. Really? And I saw this. I, I, I saw this with my own eyes. And as we know, after many abduction cases, abductee finds a brown color substance on the body, on the skin. Yeah. And sometimes on the clothing. So, what we called visits of the genies, yeah, I think they were visits of the extraterrestrials. And this is a phenomenon that still is happening in Turkey. 
Yeah. I mean, this is something modern. What I saw was in 1980s that brown colour substance. It is not 5,000 years ago. <laughs> and and what did you um? Did you like feel this brown substance? Did you smell it? Was there? I mean, what what were the characteristics of this okay. brown stuff? Okay. Uh, it is. Do you know henna? Vaguely. Henna. It's uh, brown color. In India, they make the uh, designs. Yeah. In your palms. Okay, it's a yeah. kind of tattoo. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Henna is um, a plant-based substance. Yeah. To make that kind of uh, designs in your palm, so it looks like a henna. It is brown, and it is a little bit sticky, mm-hmm. and it is very difficult to wash it off. For instance, it ha- when the child wakes up. In the morning, yeah. wakes up with that substance in both hands. Why in hands? I don't know. <laughs> and it doesn't go off all day. How much you wash, it doesn't go off. But in Turkey, they say, oh, okay, it was genes. It was genies. So, okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's accepted. I'm telling you, there are no secrets there. Strange. In the- there is nothing to hide. <laughs> Do these kids that get taken, do they ever say what where they went or what happened? Do they don't remember or what? Well, there are many cases, of course, and some of them remember. Some of them uh, talk about the visitors who come from the closed windows inside of the room. Yeah. And it is interesting. At the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned the wolf as a symbol or as a shape-shifting uh, image. Yeah. So, uh, we know that in abduction cases, Greys or reptilians or Nordics, whoever they are, they use the images that you know. Yeah. For instance, if you are interested in angels, you see an angel, but exactly. it's a shape-shifting, it is not an angel. Yeah. Or if you are interested in cats, you see a cat. If you are interested in deers, you see a deer. So, it depends on what images, what information has the little child? What does a little child know? Uh, generally knows the tales, okay? Mm-hmm. It, it, a little child reads uh, Snow White and the seven, what is that, midgets? Dwarves. Dwarves? Yeah. Yes. So, child says that three dwarves came into my room. Yeah. Because this is the image that she, he knows, she knows. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, if it's a scary image, child can see that I saw the witch of Snow White, you know, the tale of Snow White's stepmother, yeah. the witch. She came and played with me or made me cry last night, something like this. Wow. So whatever you have in your subconsciousness, mm-hmm. they, they appear to you under this image. And, of course, it is not the real image. Yeah. I wanted to reference one of the articles uh, that I read that you wrote um, about the Scarlet Woman. Oh, yes, yes. Because uh, that kind of ties in here with the uh, with these abductions and that sort of thing and these contact and, and, and uh, w- weird sort of interaction. Can you talk about the, uh, the tradition of the Scarlet Woman in Turkey? Is that still going on today? And people yes, yes, happens? it is still. Of course, it comes from the past. But still, in some villages, in remote areas of Turkey, 
it is uh, still it's going on. So they believe that there is a creature. It shows itself like a horrible-looking woman, mm -hmm. and generally it wears red. That's why it is called Scarlet Woman, Scarlet Lady. Yeah. And uh, they describe this woman with uh, long teeth and very long nails. It's a kind of vampire style. Yeah. And what she does is to attack the newborn babies and at the same time to attack to their mothers, young mothers, basically uh, to get something from them. Yeah. This may be their life or their blood or their energy, spiritual energy. There are two possibilities, spiritual vampirism or normal classical vampirism. Yeah. Spiritual vampires or classical vampires. And Scarlet Lady also is a big enemy of the horses. So attacks the horses and eats the internal organs of the horse. So cattle mutilations. Yeah. Horse mutilations. Yeah. So this was a concept in Turkey in the past. And still, it is a big fear in Turkey today. But I mean, of course, not in the cities, in the remote areas, yeah. in the rural areas. Still today, they feel obligated to protect their animals From against this creature. Wow. Still today, it's happening. You're talking about how it's really open in Turkey and how people are more open to the UFO enigma and all these other elements of the paranormal. But um, you've come to America. Why did you leave this wonderful place where UFOs are okay and to come to a place where UFOs are lame? Here in America, UFO studies is, is marginalized, and it sounds like you, you were going pretty well over there in Turkey. Well, but remember one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the best investigators in this country. We have the best investigators, So, which means a lot to me. So being here gives me the opportunity uh, to share the same conferences, same meetings with them. I have been interviewing uh, many well-known names in UFO community since I came. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to be a, a conference speaker uh, in 2005 in uh, Newfolk National UFO Conference. Mm -hmm. So, and also this year I will be speaking in Aztec yep. in March. And uh, there are so many cases also here to investigate, yep. such as the FO crashes, close encounters. And uh, being here ufologically in, in many other ways, it's a big pleasure for me. Yeah. So I also believe that you can learn in your country, but traveling teach you more than everything. Traveling and meeting new people, going to new places, it is a big school. Yeah. So staying in the same spot doesn't teach you a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's why I really believe in the power of moving ahead, going to new places, meeting new people. This is very important. Yeah. Um, Professionally. Now, have you looked at um, the UFO culture around other parts, uh, the countries around Turkey? Uh, is there much, is it sort of the same, or are they a little bit different, or, um, you know, because, like, we have an understanding here in America, kind of, of what's going on in Canada and Mexico and that kind of thing. Uh, what, what about the region around Turkey? No, remember one thing that 
in our neighbor countries, the on the west are Balkans. Yeah. Greece and Balkans, Balkan countries, I mean, uh, Central European countries. Mm-hmm. Not Greece, but Central European countries were in war in the last almost 20 years. Yeah. So what we heard from Bosnia, from Kosovo, were only war news. Yeah, yeah. Even, I mean, if they had a mass for siding and lending every day, they wouldn't care. Yeah. So the real life, the real horse didn't let them to see the sky because they were trying to save their life. Yeah. So it was impossible. On the other side, Middle East, we know what's happening there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody thinks about UFOs. Yeah. So <laughs> in that way, Turkey is the only area that we have the real UFO. Uh, reports and information about some uh, sightings and uh, events. So <laughs> that's the situation. <laughs> okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about that, that gets sort of passed around here in America a lot uh, regarding your part of the country, and that's uh, Mount Ararat and uh, the the potential for it being the resting place of Noah's Ark. Is that just a folk tale that gets passed around here in America? Um, what do you guys think of that out in Turkey? Is that laugh well, out out there, or is it actually thought about as possibly real? Uh, now, uh, there are some people, some investigators, they really believe that uh, the Ark is there. Yeah. The rest of the Ark is there. But when you think about the history, when you look at the uh, different mythological stories from different ages, mm-hmm. there are so many floods. Yeah. And there are so many stories just like Noah's story. Yeah. So which one was the real? Which one are we looking for? Yeah. To me, there is no ark there. Okay. But again, I have never visited there. I never traveled there. So maybe saying this, I'm making a mistake. Maybe there is. (laughs) So I have to keep my mind open. Yeah. So if there is, and if somebody finds it, I'm going to be very happy. Of course. But my intuition, my inner voice says that there isn't. To me, that is, again, Noah's Ark wasn't made of the wood. Yeah. It was metal. Exactly, yeah. Well, I figured I'd ask you because, uh, you know, Mount Ararat is in Turkey, so you'd know better than I would at least. But what about people in, in Turkey? Do they Do they think that, or is that sort of just like... Well, it depends. The traditional people, of course, say that, yes, it is a real thing, and one day somebody is going to find it. Yeah. And moderate people say that, maybe. (laughs) Imagine uh, Istanbul was Byzantine, Constantinople, Mm -hmm. in the past, before Ottomans. And still, in some specific areas of the city, is full of uh, monuments from the Byzantine times. Yeah. We have a monument, uh, and people say that it is linked to some underground rooms. Again, the monument is linked underground room. And there, ex- there is uh, the wood pieces from Jesus Christ's cross who died on. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many stories. It sounds like it, yeah. 
You touched on your work here with TLC's Dead Tenants. How did you get involved with uh, this program and um, tell people a little bit about it and talk about TLC's Dead Tenants and how it came about? Um, when I first came here, of course, I contacted with paranormal ghost hunting societies groups. Yeah. And one of them, PRS, uh, is located in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, I live in New Jersey, too. It's very close to me. So we started to go to investigations all together as a group because people claim that they have uh, ghost activity in their houses and they are not happy about it. Yeah. So we decided to, we, we started to work together as a team. And then uh, our group leader got a phone call from some producers who wanted to make a television show for TLC. Oh, wow. And they wanted to meet us. We got together and we met them, and they interviewed us on on camera. Yeah. And later we forgot that <laughs> because one year passed. Oh wow. Yes. And then again they called us and they said we decided to make the show with you. We said okay. And uh, in in the summer months we we started to shoot the episodes. It was about the real ghost hunting experiences, yeah. real families, real houses. So uh, I was in uh, only five episodes, I guess, because as we were a crowded team, not everybody was in every uh, show. Yeah. So we were shifting. Yeah. And uh, we really investigated very, very good episodes, very good cases. And uh, the show was based on our investigation as a psychic medium. Mm -hmm. But before we go to the location, we weren't allowed to get any information from the family. Yeah. So we didn't know anything about the backstory. So we were doing our uh, psychic research separately and independently in every room, and we were describing what we see, what we feel in front of camera. Mm -hmm. For instance, it may be, I can see here there is an old lady with a little child sitting and trying to communicate me, this kind of thing. Yeah. And then we were describing what we saw to a painter, to an artist, just like in Polish uh, artists. Yeah. They describe the guy's pictures, how do you say them? Suspect. Suspects, yes. So the artist, the artist was making a portrait all based on our description. Yeah. And at the end of the show, we were showing those portraits to the house owners. Yeah. They were saying, yes, this person was my great-great-uncle. He killed himself in that room. Oh, wow. Or this person was my child. He lost her or him when he was two years old, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we also had a historical researcher. He was doing the historical research yeah. about the location, about the first owners who built the house 200 years ago, or who was the first owners, who lived there, the names, yeah. uh, the dates. So we were giving confirmations to the family. So this was the show. 
Awesome. And when did that, did you, did you take that last summer or? Um... In, in 2005. Okay. And when did the shows air? This past year? Or... Uh, it was uh, aired in 2005 mm-hmm. and 2006. And then after United States, it was aired including in Turkey in my native country this mm-hmm. year. And in other some countries, uh, in Canada, England, yeah. India, in Europe, uh, because they have, I guess, agreements. Uh, it, it was Discovery. So Discovery sells the same shows to all over the world. Awesome. Other Discovery channels, yes. It was a good show. It was a good experience, most of all. Yeah. Par- parapsychological uh, side, yes, it was a good experience. I, I really enjoyed it. And are you guys planning on, um, are they going to make any more episodes of this? Yes, it may be. Of course, it may be. Yeah, you'll be waiting another concept. year here. You never know, yeah. right? Different concepts, different cases. Yeah. It may be, of course. It's possible, of course. Um, and now you said you're working on your fifth book for um, your Turkish publishers. Yeah, um, Turkish publishers. <laughs> for, star- for starters, um, are, are there any chances, we're, uh, are your books in Turkey going to come over to America and be translated for American readers, English readers, or, or is that Well, not I'm not planning because I'm planning to write a book for American readers. Awesome, awesome. Because, as you know, uh, I'm writing in UFO magazine every month. Yep. So there are articles in my column. Mm-hmm. And also I am a program producer for Jerry Kitchen Radio Show. Uh, I'm interviewing many people. So all those interviews and my uh, visits, my travels, UFO-related travels, of course, not yep. touristic travels. <laughs> Uh, I'm making a new book with my impressions in the United States, in the UFO community, because I'm meeting many interesting people here. Awesome. Yes. So it will be an English book, too. Do you have a timetable on that sort of thing, or we're just going to have to wait and find out? Well, uh, first, of course, I have to finish the The fifth book. Turkish one. (laughs) Yeah. And then I have to publish the English one. Yeah. So I will say at least one year. Okay. All right. And um, you've enjoyed uh, the American UFO scene, it sounds like. You're, you're enjoying uh, meeting these people. And oh, yes, a lot. A lot. Very much. Awesome. Awesome. Very we're, much. we're happy to have you here in America and hope you stay. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Do you have anything you want to plug coming up? You said you're going to be at the Aztec conference. Um, do you know the dates on that? Oh, yes. Um, uh, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's a three days event, mm-hmm. and it will be my first time in Aztec. Uh, it is one of the crash sites, Aztec crash. Mm-hmm. So uh, there will be interesting names, and I'm excited to be there. And hopefully, uh, we are going to have lots of guests in our conferences. Awesome. And it's going to be an impressive three days for yes. us and for the visitors. And what will you be presenting on at Aztec? Well, uh, it, it, let it be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I mean, basically, it will be about some cases from Turkey. Yeah. But some cases from my own experiences. Mm-hmm. And who knows, until that day, I can add uh, new parts to my speech. Yes, it's like I'm you're... still working on it. <laughs> it's like your fifth book. You just keep adding things to it. Yes, I'm own. adding and adding. This activity doesn't stop. What can I do? 
All right. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds great. Um, and we'll uh, we'll have links and stuff up to the Aztec website so people can can uh, find out more information about how to check that out. Um, okay. Cara, thank you very much for being on the show. As I said, I think uh, I think a lot of people in America and ufology scene are going to be hearing a lot more from you and about you in years to come. And I'm very excited and very happy that you've come to America and, and brought your brand of UFO research to to us and helped to bridge the communities of U.S. ufology and Turkish ufology. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, good luck with your future research, and hopefully we'll be talking again in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting, and I wish you all the best for your future shows and for your work in UFO community. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big thanks to Farah Yerdezu for coming on the show and sharing some amazing insight into Turkish esoterica, lots of fascinating information that I'd never heard before. You can find out more information on Farah at her website, www.farahyurdazoo.com. Let me spell that for you, F-A-R-A-H-Y-U-R-D-O-Z-U.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for Benal of America Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter comes from Tony no hometown listed, and he is billed here under the subject line as first-time listener. Here's what Tony has to say. I just discovered you. Great conversation on Red Ice Creations Radio. I've been studying various items from 9-11 to UFO Info for two to three years now, always searching for new and refreshing takes on these things. Thank you for your courage to expose and share your thoughts. Just visited your site. will return soon and pass it along to trusted friends who share my passion for the esoteric. Thanks again, Tony. P.S. Long live alternative radio. Well, thank you very much for writing, Tony. Uh, I appreciate the props. I'm happy that you have discovered us via Red Ice Creations Radio. Welcome to all the great folks who may have discovered BOA Audio via the RICR radio appearance. Hope you enjoy the Banal of America Audio experience. And while I appreciate your props, Tony, on my courage, I will be honest with you. I've never really encountered any sort of bump in the road as far as anti-esoterica aimed at Banal of America. So I haven't really needed much courage yet. Hopefully, if the time comes when I need it, I'll be able to display it in the face of devious powers that be. Knock on wood. And also, thank you for passing along the word to your friends who share in the passion for the esoterica. It's that grassroots word-of-mouth buzz that has helped propel Banal of America onto the radar in Esoterica. If you would like to be a part of Banal of America audio listener feedback, here are the ways to do it. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will provide you with the appropriate information on how to get in touch with me. Or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to Benal of America Audio listener feedback. We've got some big news here in the thanks portion of the show. Before we get to that, let's thank the BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth. I say it week in and week out. I, I, there's only so many ways I can say it. They are the people who help make this audio program and the website a reality. Without their help, we would be a shell of what we are. And, as I alluded to, we've got 
Some big news here in the thanks. First, I want to welcome to the BOA staff, Tina Cena. She'll be writing the new column, Esotericana, at BOA every other Monday. Her debut column was this past Monday, Me, Myself, and the Stranger in the Room. It's a little bit about who Tina Cena is and some of her experiences. Tina's keeping me updated on some of her future columns, and they sound fascinating, and I think she's really going to make a mark in the world of Esoterica as 2007 unfolds. Welcome to the team, Tina Cena, and thanks for joining the staff of BOA. Banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you are a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, Click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards helping to keep the BOA machine up and running. Click the PayPal button, make a donation, help BOA. It would be greatly appreciated. The next big news, drumroll please, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations to BOA founding father Joe V on the birth of his son, Gabriel Alexander V. I don't even know if he'll hear this. He's so busy, but congratulations to Joe V, and welcome to the world, Gabriel V. Next week on the show, it is a slightly different edition of BOA Audio. It is an alternative history discussion with Paul Shatskin, the author of The Boy Who Invented Television. This is all about the story of Philo T. Farnsworth, a mere farm boy who conceived of how to make television work and happen. Back in the day, before television was this ubiquitous household appliance, many people wanted to figure out how to get it done and try and make television work and get the invention up and running. Philo Farnsworth figured it out, came up with the concept, and we go through the whole journey of concept to actually inventing the electric television. It is fascinating stuff and reads like a Hollywood movie. You've got underdog inventors, battles with the radio media, industrial spying, and in the end, attempts in retrospect to bury Philo Farnsworth and his contributions to television by present-day media types. Paul Shatskin, the boy who invented television, next week on Banal of America Audio. The preview will be up at banalofamerica.com Friday. On that note, i got nothing left to say, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Banal, signing off.